welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Hello and welcome to another episode of People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Dominic Chicatano, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute, or ELI. ELI has partnered with Sidley Austin LLP to launch a new podcast series called The Enforcement Angle. This year-long series will feature conversations about state and federal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations with senior enforcement officials and thought leaders on environmental enforcement in the United States and globally. The host of this series is Justin Savage. Justin is a partner and the global co-leader of the environmental practice at Sidley Austin LLP. From 2004 to 2013, Justin served as senior counsel and a trial attorney for the Environmental Enforcement Section of the U.S. Department of Justice's Environment and Natural Resources Division. On today's inaugural episode, Justin speaks with Susan Bodine, who is the Assistant Administrator for EPA's Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance. Susan is the highest-ranking enforcement official at EPA and formerly served as staff in the U.S. Senate. Thanks, Justin, for joining us today for this first episode. I'm very excited for this series, and I can't wait to record many more together. Thanks, Dominic, and I'm equally excited once I actually figure out how to use my computer. And thank you, Susan, for joining us on this inaugural episode. How are you doing? Very well, Justin. Good to hear from you. And before we talk shop, which is what we do on the enforcement angle, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, including where you grew up? Sure. I grew up in Oxford, Ohio, so I'm from the Midwest. Oxford is where Miami University of Ohio is located, so I grew up in a college town. I did go uh, east for, for college and law school, so I actually never did move back to the Midwest, but, uh, but still a Midwestern girl. And that's a beautiful campus for those who have not visited with some historic I'd say very brick buildings, it just is the idyllic campus setting. And so how did you transfer from uh, Oxford, Ohio, and really get involved in some some uh, weighty environmental issues as an environmental lawyer? How did you get into this field? Sure, I well, at, I went to undergrad at Princeton uh, in New Jersey and then um, spent a couple of years in New York before going to law school at University of Pennsylvania. And then um, my first job out of law school was a DC firm, Covington and Burling. Uh, and at Covington, for first year associates, they ask, well, maybe they don't anymore, but at the time they asked uh, associates, you know, pick two practice areas from a list. Um, and then you would be ass assigned to partners in those practice areas. And I picked environmental and communications, both of which are, are very technical areas. And so after about a year, I decided I couldn't do two very technical areas of law and became 100% environmental attorney, which is what I did for, oh my goodness, um, I wanna say six and a half years, maybe six years. But then in 1994, the house flipped. So that meant that after many, many, many years, the Republicans took over the majority in the House of Representatives. And they didn't expect it. 
And so they were faced with the uh, opportunity of, of staffing up. They needed to hire more staff to be in the majority. So I, I, uh, was, I had the opportunity then to, to go to the Hill. Uh, it's a very DC kind of story. The, the wife of the incoming uh, staff director for the committee for the incoming chairman, Bud Schuster, uh, she worked at the firm and she recommended me. And so I have to say, um, when I talk to our law clerks or young attorneys about kind of my career path, I always tell them, work hard and do your best, uh, always, uh, so people will recommend you. Be nice to people, and then don't be afraid to take a chance. In other words, if something interesting falls into your lap, take it. You can, you can always go backwards, but if you, don't, if you don't take these opportunities, you'll never move forward. So I grabbed the opportunity, uh, went up to the hill where I stayed actually working for the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee for about 11 years. Uh, and then from there, I went to EPA as the assistant administrator for what is now the Office of Land and Emergency Management. That's the office with the Superfund program, RICRA, Emergency Management Program. Yeah, it's the land office. So, uh, and that was the last three years of the George W. Bush administration. Um, and then, you know, kind of when I interviewed for that job with uh, then Administrator Steve Johnson, um, I introduced myself and he looked at me and said, no, 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 Susan, we've already met. I said, oh no, <laughs> I don't remember meeting him now. <laughs> he said, oh yes, I remember you when he was the head of the pesticides office uh, previously as, as a career head of the office, he had come up to the Hill and had briefed me and my colleagues on the Hill on that topic. And he said, oh yeah, I remember you. You were smart, but you were nice. So that kind of goes to the, you know, you never know who you're going to be interviewing with <laughs> asking for a job at some point in time. Uh, so as I said, I worked uh, at EPA for three years. And then at the end of the administration, I went into private practice, which dovetailed very nicely with when my two children uh, went to college. Uh, but when I was uh, almost done with the college education uh, bit, the, um, my younger son still had one year left, uh, the Senate uh, flipped. The Senate went Republican in 2014. And I decided that I enjoyed public service uh, a lot and wanted to get back into the policy areas. And so I went back to the Hill starting in January 2015 to be the um, chief counsel for the Senate Environment Public Works Committee under uh, Chairman Inhofe. And we had an incredibly uh, productive uh, two years um, working, which was what Chairman Inhofe had left in terms of term limits to be chairman, but it was amazing. Uh, we got an enormous amount done, a highway bill, uh, a, uh, a water resources bill, um, the Tosca bill. I mean, for any two year stint, it was amazing. Uh, and then of course, uh, presidential election happened and President Trump was elected. And uh, I was asked to, to if I consider going into the, um, going back to EPA and I, I definitely said yes, obviously I'm here. And so, uh, so I went up, uh, was nominated, confirmed, and have been in this position now since December of 2017.
that that is a storied Washington career. And before exploring that a little bit more, let me ask you this, and it may sound like common sense, but and this is just an aside. Why do you think so many people in I'll call it our town or Washington fail the one criterion you identified for success, which is just being decent and nice to others? Do you have any thoughts on that? Because uh, we're certainly, I don't know if it's a swamp, but we're certainly filled with lots of colorful, egotistical characters. But why do you think people just can't be nice to each other in DC? Well, first, remember, I'm a Midwestern girl. So, so we're always nice. But second, I do think that people forget that um, that their position, they're not as important as they think they are, and that their importance goes with their current position, not perhaps you know them personally. So that, for example, when I um, when I was on the hill, and I was on the hill for a very long time, um, I always made a point of returning people's phone calls. You know, particularly uh, former hill staffers who had gone on to do other things. You just have to do that. You just have to, you have to, as you said, be decent. <laughs> and, and just looking at your career and you've spanned everything from working on the Hill to a prior political position at EPA, how does that inform your view and your current role as the head official for compliance and enforcement at EPA? It actually quite a bit. Um, so particularly being at EPA before, uh, so I came into this job with the strong view that a week's job is to enforce and ensure compliance with, with the rules. With, and the rules are made by the program officer. And so we are not a policy office. We're an enforcement compliance assurance office. And so we are not establishing the standards. Uh, we're, we're the ones uh, you know, making sure that they are met. And so I was committed and continue to be committed to having lots of communication with the program offices, particularly if there was a gray area, and making sure that whatever we were doing is consistent with the program office's own view of, of interpretation of the statute. And I have to say that was colored by some experiences when I was head of what is now Olam. Um, and then one example of this is uh, of what we've done is uh, yeah, last or May, I guess it was May, uh, I turned over the applicability determination uh, authority uh, that is in the Clean Air Act over to the Air Office because I thought it belonged in the Air Office, not in the Enforcement Office. And that's certainly fascinating and something that I think continues to evolve across administrations. Another constant is in your chair in OECA, you work extensively with state and local governments on environmental compliance and enforcement. How does EPA and its role encourage and support state and local efforts? So that's that's a, another kind of great, great story. Um, first, you know, outside of OECA, EPA does fund state programs through the state and tribal assistance grants. Those predominantly come from the Water Office, the Air Office, and then also OLM with their RICRA grants. We in OECA have only two tiny uh, grants that are for inspections that um, are for FIFRA and TOSCA. So what we really do, our partnership with the states is, is just that, is that we, 
we partner with them because we both have authority, obviously under our uh, cooperative federalism structure of our environmental statutes, states can be delegated authority or they can be authorized to carry out their own statutes in lieu of the federal law, but EPA always retains the authority. When I first got into the OECA job, you know, we did hear complaints. I heard complaints from states that uh, EPA would you know, go into their state and not tell them, uh, do inspections and not tell them, take enforcement action and not tell them, even though it was an authorized program. And so, you know, I certainly um, didn't agree with that practice. Uh, and it wasn't across the board. It was, I would have to say, it was probably the exception of the rule. But nonetheless, I wanted to make sure it didn't happen ever under, under my watch. And so we did issue a policy, which the shorthand is the partnership policy, uh, which, um, which lays out just those principles, which is in an authorized program, it's the states are the lead, the states are first. Uh, but then it goes on to talk about the importance of communication and planning. So under that policy, our enforcement offices out in the regions need to meet with their states, they need to divide up the universe essentially, uh, figure out who's gonna inspect what, and then in the, if there is an enforcement action, uh, decide who's gonna, who's gonna take an action uh, you know, if, if the state wants the lead, then the state can have the lead. And then there's also in that policy an elevation process. So if there is a disagreement, uh, then then disputes would get elevated. And I have to say, uh, that was, I think, July 2019 that we issued it, I believe, maybe earlier. Uh, we haven't had a, a need to elevate. So I think the, uh, the regions and the state are working very well with their states. Uh, a lot of times, you know, we do things together. That's particularly in the case of inspections. State inspectors will go along or EPA will go along on a state inspector. And a lot of that is capacity building and training uh, to, so that the states are, are better equipped uh, to take over the enforcement role. You know, when we do take action, we always ask the state if they want to be a co-plaintiff. Sometimes they don't want to, not because they disagree, but because it's a resource draw for them. Um, and then we also work with states to, you know, encourage encourage uh, their programs. Uh, for example, we have we've entered into memorandum of agreement with three states: uh, Wyoming, North Dakota, and Utah. To uh, and then the MOAs are on their audit policies. And what the MOAs say is, look, we've reviewed your audit policy. We think it's great, and your um, your regulated community should should understand that they can rely on the state audit policy and EPA isn't going to come in and second guess that. So again, we do what we can, you know, across the board to support states. And, and that's, I think, a terrific overview. And having worked in enforcement as a career person, uh, I can recall settlements we worked on our cases that were criticized as either being politically influenced or not tough enough and having to defend ourselves against uh, criticisms. And I think in your chair, there are certainly uh, critics of EPA. And how do you respond to critics who say that enforcement at the agency uh, could do more at a federal level, citing one statistic or another? Sure. So it, there'll always be critics of EPA. I'll just leave, leave it at, I'll, you know, just as a premise. And of course, I did congressional oversight for years and years, so I've been a critic in the past. 
Uh, but what we just talked about was the structure of our federal environmental laws are really the states have the lead. And so I always find it ironic when uh, when we do get criticized for not take, doing more inspections or not having more cases, because we really are, you know, a tiny number, you know, the tail that wags the dog, whatever the correct metaphor is. Uh, for example, if you if you go to um, ECHO, ECHO.gov, the uh, enforcement um, website, we have state dashboards there. You would you go into analyze trends and then click on the state dashboards. And you can see just the vast majority of actions are taken by states. For example, in the Clean Water Act um, space, states did 35,000 inspections in 2019. EPA did 1,178. The states are doing this work. So it's the, the major focus on, on EPA numbers, I think, is, is uh, really um, not, I want to say a huge mistake, but also it just misses the point. Uh, you, what we should be doing, what EPA should be doing are the, the co complex cases where we need to bring all of our resources. Uh, the other ones, of course, are direct implementation where states don't have authority. In, in this administration, we shifted from national enforcement initiatives to national compliance initiatives. So rather than targeting particular industry sectors, what we did was we started with the agency strategic plan and looked at what EPA enforcement can do to support the agency strategic plan. And so we are targeting areas where, for example, there's non-compliance with, um, with an NPDES permit or where a particular area is in non-attainment uh, for an ambient air quality criterion or where there is a vulnerable population and there are air toxic sources, uh, or where there's a drinking water public health issue. So again, we are, we're, we're targeting to meet our strategic plan objectives, understanding that what we really need to be doing are, the, are really the largest complex cases. And if you look at the stats, so instead of saying what is the number, because clearly I, we could go after tons of little cases and get our number up, but for no purpose, or the number of inspections. We could go and inspect lots of you know, small, you know, for example, every UIC well counts as a separate inspection. We don't have enforcement, we don't find non-compliance, so we could pad our numbers, but there's no point. Uh, so instead, by taking the, uh, the more complex cases, the bigger cases, I think that it would probably surprise our critics because that is how you framed the question, Justin, and surprise actually many in the public that in this administration, we have collected more in civil penalties as well as criminal fines and restitution than the first four years of the prior administration. And in fact, with the cases that we have, have lodged or we, have, we know that are going to um, be completed soon, if you look at it in terms of the, of, President Trump's first term, we will have double the number of civil penalties as well and criminal fines and restitution as when compared to the first term of the prior administration. Now that is not the popular lore that's out there, but that's what the result is of, of taking uh, the complex important cases. Just taking a step back from this, you mentioned the states having a leading role, and at least from my perspective, as someone who works with companies, 
you every company has an EHS department or an internal compliance department. And those are folks who day-to-day -day help companies try to stay within the, the lines, the rules. And just from your perspective, you've worked on the Hill, you've worked at EPA multiple times. What do you see as the elements of a healthy compliance culture just for people who have to do this on a day-to-day -day basis and interact with their, their business units? Uh, first, Justin, what you described were, is not true across the board. I'm sure they're, it's true of your clients. Um, I'm sure it's true of the people who, I, who would have come in to see me when I was on the Hill or here. But um, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of small companies that don't have uh, compliance help, and, uh, and frankly, they need our help. So if you look at enforcement on a spectrum, there are a lot of entities out there that just need compliance assistance because they don't know what they're doing. Um, but then there are also folks who are uh, who do know what they're doing, and then and yet they still break the law. And of course, egregious knowing—that's what our criminal enforcement division is all about. But you still see in our civil cases, you see that as well. So I think that. Uh, these compliance systems, these environmental management systems are incredibly important, but equally important is to make sure that you're not creating incentives to, shut, to cut corners. So don't have your marketing people report or be in the same division as your, uh, your, your compliance people. Don't have your uh, your R&D people be in the same division as your compliance people, because you, what you don't want is to create these perverse incentives to, to cut corners, because uh, one, uh, it never plays out. Uh, people write emails, we find the emails, and you know it it it, it doesn't work out well for the company. So making sure, of course, to have these programs, but also making sure that they have different reporting structures, that they have proper incentives to stay in compliance and don't create the disincentives. Yeah, don't, don't let the, the marketing people run the show. Yeah, you mentioned incentives, structures, and reporting. Are there other common mistakes that you see uh, folks make when they're engaging with OECA where you just, you, you know, you see it again and again, which might be just a helpful learning for people who are out there. Sure. Uh, so you're asked, so people do come in and talk to us, uh, obviously. Um, I think, you know, we were talking about more the the internal management of a, of a corporation, and now we're talking about engaging with the agency. So Correct. with the agency, the first thing I'm going to tell somebody who comes to me, even if I've known you for 25 years, is go talk to the region. You know, go you because they are unless it's the headquarters case, but we don't have many that are headquarters cases. So you need to go. You need to go first through through the region uh, and um, you know essentially present your case to them, and then then if if that doesn't if if the result is unsatisfactory, then people can elevate. And that would be coming to headquarters, which would be coming to me. But people should be aware that before I'm going to meet with anybody on an enforcement matter, I'm going to get a briefing from my staff. So I'm going to be very well versed in the facts before anybody comes in to see me. And so it's not in, in anyone's interest 
to gloss over facts, to draw, you know, perhaps uncomfortable facts. It's not in anyone's interest to um, misrepresent facts uh, because you're going to lose whatever sympathy you're coming in to get uh, if, if you do that. So be prepared, have your facts straight, and don't be evasive. Um, and then, yeah, but but it's but certainly it's appropriate. I, I you know while while I send people to the regions first, uh, obviously you know appealing uh, to you know to headquarters you know is a, is appropriate. Uh, in you know we don't again most of these matters do get resolved at the regional level. However, any other do's and don'ts besides grasping the nettles firmly and just being candid about the, the good and not so good facts. Any other do's and don'ts for people who engage with you, your your staff? Well, the worst is when they don't answer questions. So, and that, things do seem to drag on, but a lot of it is because we're not getting responses. So I would also urge people, you build a lot of goodwill if you're responsive. So yeah, if you answer questions. I mean, we have a lot of authority. We can, we can, um, we can get answers to our questions, but it's, you know, it's certainly, I would say it's in the regulated community's interest to simply answer the questions up front. And, uh, you know, you, you may not, again, they may be nettles to use your term, but, um, but being candid and forthright and about information is definitely important. So, so stepping back and taking a broader focus, I think it's fair to say the U.S. has been an environmental leader for, for decades and having been in several other countries, I do appreciate our clean air, water, and soil here, but from your vantage point, what can the U.S. do to encourage other countries to follow suit and have robust protections for air, water, soil, and the rest of our environment? Well, we, we obviously have an international office that does a lot of work um, that's, you know, with other countries, but purely looking at it from an OECAS perspective, we, um, we, do have, we have so many tools that we've developed. And so we, we, not right now, but before COVID, we would frequently get delegations from other countries coming to visit and they would visit headquarters, they would visit regions. And they were, they're always extremely interested in our compliance monitoring tools. So whether we have electronic reporting, whether we have, um, you know, I think we're, you know, whether we have cameras, infrared cameras, whether we have you know, remote uh, sensing, those are, those kinds of tools are what um, what foreign countries are often you know, very interested in. Because uh, I have to say the um, and now I'm kind of hearkening back to some of my prior not not my current job but prior jobs I've had in engaging with other countries. It's not unusual to see a really good program on paper. But I do have to say that it's only more recently that other countries have followed through with the enforcement compliance piece. So I mean, I, <laughs> I've been in meetings where where another you know, this is you know probably a G20 country you know bragging about their program and and knowing that they didn't enforce it. Uh, so it's so getting to getting the. Um, you don't get the benefits, you don't get the results unless people comply. And people, most people are gonna comply, all of your clients I'm sure are gonna comply, but you still, you need that deterrent effect, you need the effective oversight, compliance oversight, and the effective enforcement program to create that 
Uh, and that is something that, that other countries are now adopting you know, robust programs. And they are looking to the United States as a model. And just thinking about other countries in the U.S., I'm going to ask you to put a crystal ball in front of you. Do you think there are technologies in the next five years or so that could change environmental compliance and enforcement? Electronic reporting. So right now we just have um, we have electronic reporting in our uh, clean water permit uh, NPDES program. The um, RICRA permits are, are going. Um, E-manifest is electronic. Um, and I know that Olum is working hard on, on expanding the use of the E-manifest program. So that is that that is a game changer because I have to say it, it's so easy <laughs> to find noncompliance uh, because everyone is reporting and you um, and we we do we use the, the data we have right now. Uh, we use it for targeting. Uh, we and you know it's not just the you, you know, the simple you didn't report, but it can also be um, you know the uh, the shipment of hazardous waste didn't show up where it was supposed to kind of examples. Um, so it's it's certainly uh, certainly electronic reporting is a game changer. But we also, as I mentioned when I was talking to uh, talking about um, what we show foreign delegations, we have fancy equipment. You know, we do have uh, the infrared cameras that can see the VOCs that wouldn't be visible to the naked eye. Now, that doesn't say that there's necessarily a violation, but we use those for targeting. You know, if, you, if you're during an inspection and you can see VOCs venting off, then believe me, you're going to take a very hard look um, and often you will find some noncompliance there. And you can do that. You don't have to go on site, too, to, to do that. Uh, you can... You, we have a truck called our, um, it's the GMAP truck, but Geospatial Measurement of Air Pollution. You can drive through a neighborhood and, and find out where there are elevated levels of, of air pollutants. We can do the same thing from an airplane. We can fly over and see where there are elevated levels. Uh, and, but those tools you know, make it mean that you don't have to go to every facility. And that kind of goes back to your earlier question about statistics. Is it really meaningful? To, uh, to do lots of inspections that don't find anything? Or is it meaningful to figure out where you, where you know the problems are and go and inspect those? And I would say the latter. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. And also just sticking with looking into the future. You know, there are people who may be looking, younger people, to practice environmental law. You're Susan from Oxford, Ohio, and you've held four high-profile government positions in DC and been a partner and done other things. So for those younger folks who are looking to get into this field, particularly in enforcement and compliance space, what advice would you give? Well, I have to say my, um, my career path to enforcement is the non-traditional one. Um, and so I had to go back to, I guess, that I've just been around for so long that I get recommended for jobs. The, the traditional path is probably, it's the one that you took, Justin. It's, uh, go and work for a U.S. Attorney's Office, go and work for the Department of Justice. Those are fantastic jobs for young attorneys. You get so much experience and so much training uh, that, uh, that that really is uh, a wonderful entree. And then, alt, you know, you don't, also, you don't have to go to work for DOJ, you can come work for EPA. You know, we, we hire a lot of young attorneys um, and we have, we have law clerks, we have summer clerks, the, um, 
know, the opportunities here are actually are, are excellent also. You get, uh, because we're not doing, at headquarters, you know, we, we're doing the policy issues, the enforcement policy issues, but we're doing the policy issues. Or if you wanted to go work for an EPA region, you would be, you would be managing cases and you'd be working both an administrative docket and with the Department of Justice on our judicial cases. So, you know, I, I get it that a lot of people right out of law school need to spend a few years paying off their debt. I get that. But after that, I have to say, working for the federal government, uh, it really gives you the experience um, and opportunity. Thank you, Susan. That was a helpful and thoughtful answer. We do appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today on our inaugural Horseman Angle podcast. Thanks much. You're very welcome. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, Dominic. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.